All right, well, good morning. My name is Mark. Um, hey, do you have a routine that you, you go through in the morning? I don't know if it's just me or if, if this is a shared experience, but I guess over 40 plus, 41 years of life, like uh, I've gotten, you know, just some things. When I wake up in the morning, there's just, there's just some things that I do, and I've, I've noticed that it is a, a system that, uh, that I live in. I don't like the mornings that I don't get to walk through that, those same things. The mornings that I get to fully, you know, do all these things, then it's like, hey, that was, that was a really good morning. That's one of the reasons that, I mean, I get up really early, and I don't mind early morning meetings, but I, I, I'm a little bit upset because it's like, man, all right, so then it's going to mess up my system. That just means I have to get up an hour earlier, or, or my whole system's blown out of the water. You know, anybody agree with that? I don't know. Maybe it's just me. So I, I was going to kind of walk you through, and I promise this has a point, some, uh, some of the things that, uh, so I, I get out of bed in the morning. Uh, first thing I do, there's some, some Adidas uh, slippers that we have, and I slide in those Adidas slippers. Uh, it started to be a little bit chilly, you know, last week. Not today, goodness, but it started to be that way, and I've got some sweatpants that I've had a long time. And uh, in fact, I've had it so long that the elastic band around the waist is not elastic anymore. So as I make my way to the kitchen, I actually have to actually hold them up, which Terry thinks is stupid, but... Uh, so I kind of stumble in, in, into the kitchen, you know. And then the first thing always, there's this, this one kind of cereal. It's not the best tasting cereal in the world, but, uh, but it's that healthy cereal that I, I go to. And I always wake up hungry, and I grab this, this box of cereal, make me a bowl of cereal, stumble, you know, holding on to my pants and the cereal over to my chair, sit down in my chair and, and pull up on my phone the BBC World News uh, app. So uh, always the BBC, check out what the BBC has to say about what's been going on in the world. That kind of wakes me up and gets my mind going. Then it's time for, for the coffee ritual. So I make my back, way back over to the coffee maker. Uh, first, always, I mean, open up that bag of coffee and just smell it a little bit, you know. Pour it into this little bitty coffee grinder that we have. And then I, I make my way upstairs to the boys' room to plug it in and to grind the coffee. <laughs> Then I come back downstairs, I, I take my, make my coffee, have a seat in the chair, uh, pull open my Bible, <clears throat> have some time that I, I read my Bible and I pray a little bit about the day. And then whenever there's about 15 minutes before it's time to get ready, I've got a workout that consists of uh, going down to the floor, doing a push-up, and then standing back up. And going down to the floor and doing a push-up and standing back up. And I do that, you know, there's kind of this way that I go about it for 15 minutes, not a minute longer. And then I go get ready for the day. And that's, that's, you know, given enough time in the morning, that's just, it's just what I do. Now, every one of those steps has a purpose. There's a, there's a reason behind the things I do. There's, a, there's an answer to the question why. I wear slippers. I don't go bare feet. We've got concrete floors, and they get really, really cold. So you better wear slippers or it's just, it's just not comfortable. These pants are soft, and they're just nice. And until they fall apart and disintegrate, I'm going to wear them, you know. I'm going to have to figure out like a clothespin or something to keep them up, but I'm going to wear these pants because I absolutely love them. Uh, it's this box of cereal that doesn't taste that great, but it's full of fiber, and it just gets things going in the morning. It's just a good, it's a good start to the day, you know. I'm going to look at the BBC, not CNN, not Fox News. Why? Well, because the thousands of people who lost their lives in some natural disaster in Tunisia are going to get at least the same press as what Kanye wore to the Grammys. 
It's, just, it's not, it's not going to be one-sided. It's going to be the world. I also love the way that all the British news anchors, if you've noticed, like they have a big gap between their t- two front teeth, which tells me that like that's uh, something that people like in, in England, which is awesome because if I hadn't had braces, like my two front teeth are about this far apart, so I would be an incredible British anchor, man. I'm like, I should, I miss my calling. Always British news. Coffee, because let's just, I mean, coffee is the nectar of God, right? It's just good. And I, I grind the coffee in my boy's room because they tend to need a little help getting woken up in the morning. And the coffee grinder is the perfect answer to that. Why the Bible? Why prayer? Because all of these steps are things that start up this day. And if I don't start out with God's perspective on life, I'll end up, you know, naturally, the gravity will pull me back towards my perspective, my messed up perspective of what life is and who's, who this story is really all about. And this workout... Why 15 minutes? Because I figured out that uh, I only want to be tired and, and in pain the minimum effective dose. The minimum effective dose. So there's this workout that I figured out I can do, and it's the minimum effective dose to accomplish my purpose of staying somewhat fit, you know? So there you go. I don't know what your morning looks like, but that's why I do the things I do. And purpose equals why. What's the answer to the why? And I just think as a people, we don't ask the question, why enough? Why do we do the things that we do? Not just our morning routine. Why do you have the job that you have? Why did you marry the girl that you married or not? Why did you move to Northwest Arkansas? Why are you here? Why are you at the Grove Church this morning? Why? 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 We get so busy and we do so many things that we get our nose down and we just go through the the motions of our day and most of the time we never stop and just say, why? When we look at this, this story of Moses and we talk about what purpose is, what we're saying is, what is the why? What was the why for Moses? This incredible thing that's happening in Moses' life and the, the way that God's fixing to use him to set Israel free is that What's the, what's the why in, in his life? What's the purpose? It's funny to me that when we look at that story of the burning bush and God starts to tell Moses what he's going to do through him, and Moses' response is, why me? Who am I? And that's hilarious to me because, all right, let's be honest, who else? Who else would have been, you know, from Israel, Israel blood, but then at the same time, brought up in the house of Pharaoh. Were there a lot of those guys, gals running around? I think it was just him, right? Um, This story of Moses didn't begin at the burning bush. It wasn't like all of a sudden that morning God said, hey, I'm going to let this guy do this thing. I mean, this this thing had started a long time ago, right? I mean, all the things that happened in Moses' birth, his childhood, the 400 years of, of slavery, all of these things that, that God had been doing for a long time, his whole life, from before Moses was born. This purpose of Mo- Moses was in action, that God was going to use him. And Moses has the audacity to say, why me? Of course you. Who else? You know, I think that happens a lot of times with, uh, with us, that there's things that God wants to do in you, what he wants to do in me. But uh, when he points it out, we just kind of like turn away and say, oh, that's for somebody else. That's not for me. Even though, obviously, your experiences, the way that God made you, the passions he's put in your heart, they fit that thing. But, you know, that just looks a little bit too big. 
You know, as you look at the story of Moses and you just walk, walk all the way through the Exodus, all of these different stories, it's easy to look at these guys and go, man, that guy is crazy. And then we all, it always comes back, man, that's exactly like me. Can't believe Moses says, why me? But, you know, uh, I think part of it, if I put myself in Moses' shoes, he had probably found a really comfortable place and made a life for himself in Midian. You know, all that craziness of who he was and the, the murder and, and all the things in his past, and then he gets to this new place. Have you ever, have you ever wanted to, like, break from everything that you know as it is right now and move? We were some friends the other night talking about this. And move to some place where nobody knows you and nobody knows your past and you don't have any responsibilities and life is really easy, and the only thing that you've got to worry about is if you're going to get sunburned today. Have you ever wanted to like go to that place of Midian and just kind of take it easy, man? Life is slow in Midian. I'm not Moses in Midian. I'm just, I'm just a guy, you know? So leaving that and taking on this thing that, that God has put in his heart, that's a hard move that Moses doesn't want to make. But let's be honest, it's not a new passion to him either. I mean, evidently, he saw it, felt it, knew that something needed to be done, and took action to kill the Egyptian soldier, right? So this is something that he's already had a passion for. God has a passion for it. Moses has been given that passion for it. Moses tried to act on that passion by his own power, and you see what it got him. But this is not a new passion, this is a passion he's had for a long time. Imagine growing up when he realizes that he's growing up in, in Pharaoh's house and these are his people and to see the way that they were being treated and to know that he was one but, but not with them. To know that he had some power to do something about it but not sure how to do it. Imagine the frustration. Imagine the 40 years in, in Midian. I mean, do you think that he could just easily sleep at night? Or do you think he was reminded of what he left back back in Egypt. You think as he's out spending those days watching the sheep and he's got time, do you think every once in a while maybe it came back to his mind what his family was enduring back in Egypt and how he had just left it all? I think, I think that's what would happen to me and you. It sounds really fun that we would find some beach and, and just sit with a glass with some you know, fancy umbrella in it all day. That sounds great, but we would start to remember we start to remember the needs and the things that we've been made to do something about that we just left behind, that we didn't act on. So Moses, he, he decides to obey. And he takes his, his wife and his two sons, and, uh, and they start to travel to Egypt. Now, now think about this for a minute. What, what must have been going through their minds as they're leaving Midian and waving by, especially wife and these two boys, waving by to their family as they make their way to Egypt? Moses walking back into this situation, this volatile situation where he, he represents all these things to just two different groups of people. His wife, who only knows the tales of that. His children, who are like, what, Daddy, what in the world are we doing, you know? They get, they get along the way. They get to a hotel. And then there's these crazy few verses in chapter 4, which we don't have a lot of detail about, but I think there's something significant to. It says that God comes to the hotel, and he's going to take Moses out. What? I, I don't know. If, you, if you've been reading through the story, it's, it's pretty crazy. Like, all of a sudden, God is going to kill Moses. All of these things have happened. The burning bush happened. Now they're, at, now they're halfway, and he's going to come to him, and it says he's going to take him out. And then somehow in this exchange, his wife 
circumcises their son, takes the foreskin and puts it on uh, Moses' foot and says, and you kind of read into it, kind of this attitude of, uh, you're the bridegroom of blood to me. And it says that God relents. What in the world? We don't have a whole lot of details, but this is what you can kind of pick up from everything. Evidently, this, uh, this thing that God had told to Abraham that that uh, uh, every male that's born, eight days old, needs to be circumcised. And that's, that's rule. And if you don't follow this rule, you'll be cut off. Evidently, Moses hasn't followed that thing, that command that God had given to them. And so here he is going to do this incredible thing for God. And he hasn't obeyed in something really simple. There is sin in his life. And before he can move forward, he needs to obey God in this thing that God commanded. Do you see the significance for us? God leads us to go do things. He has a purpose for your life, but there's a lot of times for us, there's this thing that's kind of holding us back. And it's that sin that God has put his finger on. I guarantee you this wasn't the first time that God had pointed this out to Moses. Moses knew he was in disobedience. And for us, there are these things that God, for me, there's been these things that God will keep on putting his finger on and keep on putting his finger on. Mark, this needs to change. Mark, this needs to change. Mark, you need to stop doing this. Mark, you need to start doing this. This, this, this. When those morning times when I open up the Bible, it seems like it's the only thing that keeps on coming back to me. Do something about this. Mark, do something about this. I am basically unusable until I move this, remove this thing that God keeps putting on his finger on from my life. Before Moses can go and do the thing that God's called him to, this thing has to be done. What is that thing for you? Then Moses, he he unites with his brother, his three-year-older brother Aaron, and they go in to to Pharaoh. And I'll be honest with you, the first time they go into Pharaoh, it doesn't go very well. In fact, most of these times, right, ten plagues are coming, and, and every time Moses doesn't respond that well, but the first time, it's really ugly. They go in and, and tell him, hey, God has said to let his people go. And uh, Moses says, no. Nah. And on top of that, I'm going to make their work harder. I'm going to expect the same thing from them, but I'm going to give them less help. So it's going to be really, really, really hard for them. And Pharaoh's response is, who is the Lord you're talking about? I don't know his name. Why should I obey him? Then he makes it harder on the, on the people of Israel. And so the people of Israel come to Moses and say, the Lord should judge you for what you've done to us. Moses says to God, why have you done this evil? Why have you, God, done this evil to the people? Why did you send me? You have not delivered the people at all. Everything you said you were going to do, you didn't do any of it. I went in, I obeyed, I went to Pharaoh, and this is what happened. It got harder for them and nothing changed. Right now, God's looking like he pretty much just hung Moses out to dry. All right, so something real crucial here, kind of a spoil alert. This story is not about Moses just being happy. This story is not about Israel being happy-go-lucky and getting set free, although that's part of it. It's not the main part of the story. If it were right now, we would all go, man, this is a horrible story and this God doesn't know what he's doing. But there's more happening. So Moses and Aaron, they go back in and uh, at at the burning bush, God told him, man, if you throw your stick down, it'll turn into a snake and you can pick it back up. And it's a really cool, you know, magic trick you can do. 
So they go in and they throw the, they go to Moses and they throw the stick down, the staff, and it turns into a snake. And then Moses' magicians, they come in and they throw theirs down and they turn into snakes. Now, I love this because it's just kind of a side statement that it makes in the passage, but Moses' stick, his snake, eats the other two snakes. Which I'm just thinking, if I'm an Egyptian and I'm there watching this and I see his snake eat the other two snakes, I'm like, man, that's a bad snake. I think this guy might have something. But, you know, we don't see any of that. We just, we just know that it happened. Uh, his magicians do the same thing. Then they go back in and they say, hey, Moses, you need to do this thing. And he says, no, nope, not going to do it. So they, uh, God turns the water of the Nile into blood, which kills all the fish in the Nile. It even says that, uh, I just love these little random things that I didn't read, I didn't remember from the past, like even their wooden vessels, like their bowls and such, the water in those things turned to blood. I'm talking the, the water of Egypt turns to blood. Seven days. And I, this is amazing to me, the sorcerers of Egypt, they do some kind of trick and do the same thing and turn water to blood. So Pharaoh's like, no biggie, you know, my guys can do that. I would think seven days of blood, water, and the Nile would scare me half to death. But we hear again and again and again in the story that God, God hardens Pharaoh's heart. Where no matter how obvious it is, Pharaoh says, no, I will not let the people go. Now, why does he do that? God must be doing something. Then there's the frogs. They go in and say, let the people go. He says, no, I'm not going to let the people go. So the plague number two is frogs come up from the Nile and go all over Egypt. It says that it, they, they come and they go to their bed and they, and they get in their food and there are just frogs everywhere. And when God finally relents, all the frogs die. And it says that they have to carry all these frogs out in heaps. All of these, these dead frogs. And this is amazing to me. It says that, that the sorcerers of Egypt, they, they did the same thing. Somehow they, they made a bunch of frogs come up. So... Pharaoh's like, no biggie, my guys can do that. Then plague number three is the gnats from the dust of the earth. It's like the sand all of a sudden turns into gnats. And there are gnats. And I'm telling you, sometimes we get some gnats in our house. Gnats are, I mean, like five of them in our kitchen are bad. This says that the gnats, like the sand of the, out in Egypt, there are, all these gnats are coming out and going everywhere. And the magicians, this time, the magicians couldn't do this one. They could somehow mimic the, the water turning to blood, and they could somehow mimic the frogs, but they couldn't do the gnats. And they go to Pharaoh, and they say, this is actually God. But Pharaoh's heart is hardened. Then, plague number four, flies come from everywhere, except this time they totally take over the, the, part of the Egyptian part of town. But the Hebrew neighborhoods, no flies. So if you're walking through town and you cross the tracks... There's flies on one side of the tracks, no flies on the other side of the tracks. God is bringing attention to that this people is my people and that this plague is specifically against, against Egypt. Plague number five, all the livestock die, but not the livestock in the, in the Hebrew community. Plague six, boils come up on the skin of all the Egyptians, all these, all these boils that turn into sores. And it's so bad that these magicians... They can't even stand and try to do anything before uh, Pharaoh because these sores are hurting them so bad, they're just in their bed. God continuing to show his power. And then plague number seven, hail falls in Egypt, which you've got to imagine probably blew them away. 
And this, this hail was so big that it said it brought down the plants. It killed anything that was standing out in it. And it even brought down the trees. And that's some hail. Even brought down the trees. And then, chapter 9, during the middle of this, this whole hell plague, God says this. Exodus 9, beginning in 14. For this time, he's telling Moses to tell the Pharaoh, For this time I will send all of my plagues on you yourself, and on your servants, and on your people, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. You remember Moses' question, in, I mean, uh, Pharaoh's question in the beginning, who is this God? Well, God's doing something with these plagues. So that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now, I could have put my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence. He's already done a pretty good job with these plagues, right? But he's saying, if I wanted to wipe you off the face of the earth, I would have done it. Could have done it. But I didn't because I'm doing something here. And you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose, for this reason, answering the question why, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. What's God doing? He's using Pharaoh. He's using Egypt. He's using this whole situation to make sure that his name is exalted and proclaimed and all the earth. The, the, the superpower on the planet, God is bringing them down. But not just bringing them down, you know, in an, any normal fashion. He is systematic and strategic in the way that he does this hiney kicking. You know what I'm saying? This wasn't a showdown between the gods of Egypt and the one true God, Yahweh. No, this was an obliteration. And it was specific. Why did he do this to the Nile? Well, in Egypt, there are these, you know, myriad of different gods that are worshipped. And it usually ties back to the different things that they saw that would bring them life. And the Nile River was a source of life to them. So they worshipped the Nile. In fact, they had a god named, uh, I don't know if you say it, Hopi or Happy. But that was the god of the Nile. And they worshipped the Nile. The Nile was this god to them that gave them life. And when all of a sudden the Nile's power is taken away... It brings attention to the God who's able to bring down the God of the Nile. This frog plague. There was a, a deity named Heket who was the frog-faced deity. If you see the pictures of Heket, there's it's a human body with a frog head. And frogs were sacred. You weren't supposed to kill a frog in Egypt. Well, guess what God did? He, uh, he pretty much undid Heket, right, and killed a whole bunch of frogs. And as they looked at it, it wasn't just, oh, this is stinky and there's a bunch of dead frogs. Ooh, it was these are sacred frogs. And now this heket has been brought down, has been brought low. God was systematic and strategic. There was another guy with the gnats, this guy called Seth. With the flies, there was one called uh, uh, Uchet. With the livestock, there was one called uh, Epis. With the boils, there was one called Sanu. And with this hail, there was one called uh, Osiris that had to do with all of the vegetation. And the, the names could go on and on and on, but these were the big ones that God specifically was undoing as he used Moses and, and did this in Egypt. Then after the hail, God sends locusts, and they ate anything that was left over, any green thing that was left after the hail, the locusts took care of it. 
No green thing remained. And then I love this one. Plague number nine is total, utter darkness. Darkness for three days. And if you know anything about ancient Egypt, the sun god, Ray, was the one that was worshipped. Did you ever watch one of the, you know, any movies about the mummies that are always talking about Ray? In fact, Pharaoh was supposed to be the human embodiment of Ray. So imagine when God comes and puts total, complete darkness. It said that no, they wouldn't even move around because like even in a room, you know, if you sit in a room long enough, you know, your eyes will start to adjust and you'll start to be able to make out what's in the room. This darkness was so thick that you couldn't do that, so they just sat still. But Israel had light. On the Hebrew side of the tracks, they could see. And then the 10th plague. God says, I'm going to come across... The city, I'm going to come across the land, and I'm going to take the firstborn child at night. And this plague is going to be across everyone, both sides of the tracks. However, he comes to the people of Israel, and he says, if you'll take a lamb, and you'll, you'll slaughter it, and you'll take the blood of that lamb, and you'll put it on your doorpost. When I pass over, the angel of death comes by. I will, I will go over your house, and your firstborn child will be spared. And it happens. But you guys, this is just such a beautiful, incredible picture. That the blood of this lamb, I, I don't know, I, growing up in, a, in the church I grew up in, sometimes the pastor would talk about, you know, the blood of the lamb. Put your faith in the blood of the lamb. And he would start talking about the blood of the lamb. And it kind of wigged me out a little bit. Like, what lamb are you talking about? And why is there blood? And I just didn't get it, you know. But he was referencing Jesus and going back to this, that, that Jesus is the lamb who was slain and his blood was put on that wooden cross and that blood by which we can be saved if we believe in it. This picture in this, in this story, it all has purpose. It all has meaning. God is, is doing something even in your salvation from your sin and the punishment that you rightly deserve. He draws this picture of there was going to be one that spared, and his blood can make you clean and save you and set you free as well. And it happens, and after this is over, as you know, Pharaoh get, says, get out of here. Go, and go quickly. Something else that I think is really one, another one of these little side things. Before this, before the 10th plague, God tells the people of Israel to go to their Egyptian neighbors and ask for the gold and silver. And so they do. They go to their Egyptian neighbors and ask for their gold and silver. And guess what? They give it to them. Talks about when they leave out, like the kids are walking around with, with gold and silver on, you know? They're, they're lugging it across the desert. They totally plundered Egypt. Now, Moses tried to do this earlier on. Let's say Moses could have done it by his own power. Let's say, what's the best that Moses could have done if he had gone in and tried to, to set, Egypt, I mean, set Israel free? Take out a couple of soldiers, maybe get one family out. Egypt would still be in power, and Israel would be on the run. This thing that happened, it was a passion that was in Moses, but the bigger passion was in God. God wanted to set Israel free. God wanted to make his name great. God was going to do this thing. So what role did Moses actually play? He obeyed. He obeyed. God pointed a direction and said, do this thing, and he, he obeyed. 
I, uh, I had a picture I wanted to show you this morning that, uh, you know, I, sometimes I get made fun of, and, uh, and I, I will, because if, if you know me very well, or if you're here very often, or if we talk very long, uh, I'm going to say something about India. And, uh, and that's because it's, like, it's, it's always right here on my heart, and it's always right on my tongue. And uh, this is just an example. This is this guy that I'm with here and that family that's in the background. There are people that, that I, I, I love a lot. Uh, this guy that's in the picture there, his name's Ajay, and he died earlier this year. And he leaves behind a, a daughter who's got her first year in college and, and a son who's um, about the age of Caleb in, in junior high. And... Um, and this people that it doesn't make any sense to, to know or to care anything about. He, Ajay was born a few years before I was on the total opposite side of the planet. Why does it matter? Why do I even care? Well, because one day I started studying about this place, India, and about the number of people and about how little exposure there was to who Jesus was and that it was possible that they could also believe in that blood of the Lamb that could set them free. And it seemed like nobody was really wanting to go tell them anything about it. And it kept me awake at night. And um, it, 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 during the day, it became this thing that I wanted to learn more about it. I wanted to study more about it. And I wanted to, to know what it looked like. And it made me want to pull resources and try to figure out a way to, to get there. And, it, and to ask the question, what do you do to try to, to do anything about that? And, and why has it been so hard? And what, what can be done? And, and it, it became a, a, a passion that only intensifies over time. And that makes me really, really weird. And I know it. One day, I, uh, several years ago, I was in Hot Springs. I was at this thing. I was talking about it. And when I finished, this, uh, we had lunch. And this college student at the table, he looked across at me and he said, Mark, I know a place just like you described. And that day in particular, I've been talking a lot about the hunger and the oppression and just a lot of the, the hard stuff. And he said, I know a place just like you described. And I said, well, tell me about it. What are you talking about? He said, it's 30 minutes from here. He said, yeah, if you go up in the hills, he said, I go there a couple times a week. And there are people that live up there in the hills that they have no running water, they have nothing, and, and life is really, really hard for them. And they, they have very, very little exposure to Jesus. And so I, I make these trips up in the mountains and outside of Hot Springs somewhere. And he looked at me with the same passion in his eyes for that group of people as I had for my group of and I walked out that day realizing that he and I shared something. Because our passions were, I'm only big enough for maybe one. But God loves that people that's outside of Hot Springs. And he loves these people on the other side of the planet. And whatever that passion is and, and way that he's made you, he loves that thing and that need too. He loves those people. He wants to see that justice done. He wants to by his power. But we have to obey. And for most of us, we go, 
who am I to be a part of it? Even though if you look at your story, these things have happened and you've got these experiences and you know your personality is this way. We know more about ourselves through all these things. You know who you are and you know how God has made you and you know that thing that God, God keeps going. This is something I want you to do something about because he cares about it. How long are we going to just go, no. And I think the first step is just identifying what that thing is and maybe you've never been asked. So I'm going to ask you this morning. In fact, uh, we're going to have a little text campaign. Uh, after the service today, we'll, we'll bring it back up next week. Text Grove Purpose to 313131. And what's going to come back to you is the question. What is that thing? What is that need in the world that God has put on your heart? That keeps you up at night? That when it shows up on the news, you seem to care more about it than other people care about it? What is your Egypt? What is your India? What is your uh, village outside of Hot Springs? What is, what is yours? And I would bet that across this room, God's heart for all these different things, it shows up in his body. As we've all been given these different giftings and passions. What would it look like if we just obeyed? What would God do? With the, obedient, with the obedience of Moses... He brought down a superpower. Not just a little bit. He plundered a superpower. What might he do if you obeyed? Let me pray for us. Father, I, uh, I believe that that's true, that you have filled this room with people who aren't just meant to take up space on the planet and just breathe aren't meant to just build their own kingdom, aren't meant to just try to figure out how to, how to get a good suntan, but that you have us here for a purpose and a mission. And there are things that are on your heart, things that you want to write, proclamation of Jesus that you want to be, attention that you want to be brought to your name, Father. There are things that you are are doing on the planet and you give us the privilege and the opportunity and have made us since before we were born created us for that purpose God I ask that you would reveal it to us that you were, would inspire us and, and fill us with passion your passion for it and Father then you would empower us to say yes for your glory